0: Welcome to Consider This Northumberland, a current affairs program dedicated to the issues facing our community. We talk to the people on the front lines and those behind the scenes who make a difference in your life in Northumberland County. So I'm asking you, the listener, to take some time out of your busy day to consider this. Imagine the ultimate decadent dessert. What would it contain? Chocolate? More chocolate. Fruit? Nah, that's too healthy. Custard? Cream filling? Pie? Cake? Today's show is the ultimate decadent listening for political junkies. With a minority federal government, there's always the threat that the party in power can fall. The prime minister can call a snap election. There can be an opposition vote of non-confidence. And while it may not make sense to the average person to hold an election during a pandemic, politics often defies common sense. That means political parties must be ready to go to the polls at any moment. Former Northumberland-Peterborough South MP Kim Rudd shocked many people recently when she announced she was not going to run in the next election. She said it was her health and she wanted to spend time with her family. Within days, the Writing Association declared Alison Lester, a local lawyer, as her replacement. She was declared there was not a nomination race or a vote. In the first interview, Rudd will explain her decision to step away from taking her fourth run at elected office. She will talk about her battle with ovarian cancer and the response of her family and friends over the past year. Rudd will also reflect on her political career, as well as talk about her future. It will be no surprise to anyone, Rudd has barely slowed down. I'm so pleased to have with me today, Kim Rudd, the former Liberal MP for Northumberland Peterborough South. Welcome to Consider This.
1: Thanks, Rob. It's a pleasure. It's been a while. COVID has uh, sort of uh, hampered our our, uh, talks and our communication. I I missed that interaction.
0: People may have heard that you have decided not to run in the next federal election. Could you talk about why you stepped away from politics?
1: Sure. Um, So first of all, let me just say how much I loved being the member of parliament for Northumberland, Peterborough, South. I. I gave it everything I had. Uh, Sometimes it, it, and my family did as well. I feel that they were always part of that journey. And I'm very proud of what we were able to accomplish. When I see some of the announcements happening over the past 18 months, you know, my fingerprints on them. And I think it was the retiring head of the uh, Port Hope Rec. Um, recreation I can't remember sorry I can't remember his name and uh, there's a big announcement with Catherine McKenna and David Pacini and he said you just basically have to know that Kim's the one who did this and uh, so so that makes you feel good it makes people recognize the work that you've put in Um, I miss the interaction but I think we all do uh, given COVID and uh, so I will miss that I, I hope we'll be able to get out this summer and do more of that I I sort of got blindsided um, in, in January of 2020, at the end of January in 2020, because while I'd had symptoms of ovarian cancer, I really didn't, there, that's a trouble. They call this the silent killer for a reason, because um, you can have all the symptoms, but you can explain them away. And I certainly could, uh, you know, I'd lost the, I was so busy during the election. Then I lost the election. I was moving back from Ottawa. All of those things, um, Christmas, uh, you know, all that entails. So, So I was sort of not paying as much attention and, or maybe I was paying attention, but I could, and I have something called IBS anyways, and it is all the symptoms of ovarian cancer are mimicked by IBS. So there really wasn't a correlation for me. But at the end of January, I started feeling... Something was really wrong. Um, I was uh, just uncomfortable. I, it, it, you know, I was going to go on a diet, I gained weight. Well, it turns out um, I found out um, that I'd had ovarian cancer. And so the response through the healthcare system was excellent. Uh, you know, I had an appointment right away. I, had, I, was, a lot, one of, I was the last day of surgery at um, Lake Ridge in Oshawa before COVID. March 18th, they shut it down after that. So I felt myself very, very lucky um, because the symptoms I were have, was having up until that surgery were debilitating. Like I've never experienced anything like that. And um, I couldn't eat, I couldn't walk. I couldn't, it was, so the surgery to me, I've never had surgery before, other than what you would have as a, you know, colonoscopy or those kind of things. And my daughter-in-law, who was with me the day I went in, and we're sitting there, you know, in the cap and gown, and she said, "You look happy." I said, "Oh my God!" I said, I, "I I can't I can't live like this." So um, so then I went through that and and chemo um, chemotherapy, and uh, you know all the things that go with chemotherapy, you lose your hair. And uh, but I had almost no side effects, so I consider myself one of the very lucky ones. And so I was planning to run again because um, I'd had a checkup in December and everything was fine. Um, you know, all the, everything was, no reason why can't, I have friends that have this disease that had, were 13 years before recurrence. Some have never recurred. Um, so, so I was running. And uh, so I was in the process of doing all of that. And I started, I started to feel weird again. And um, even though my numbers were good, and as you know, there's no test for ovarian cancer. It's it's a but there are some there's some blood work while you when you know you have it that they keep track of the marker, but it's only about sixty percent accurate. My marker was still okay, but I had these symptoms, and so scan, and so by February, uh, middle of February, it wasn't happening. I decided. Um, they just, it was a decision I had to go back into more treatment. Um, I'm looking at um, a couple of um, clinical trials at Princess Margaret. I have a doctor at Princess Margaret now. I'm on one called the BioDiva, and um, it's more of a research project. And what's really ironic is when I was on the finance committee, I was my daughter's best friend, Rihanna Bassinger, and I can say this because she's very open about this. She was in her twenties when she was discovered with this, and she was a champion. And they came on the hill, and they never had research. They had money. They had something called the Lady Balls campaign, which I thought was quite intriguing. And uh, because it has no profile, like breast cancer or or or, uh, you know, in terms of women's health, so I took it on. And and you know, I worked with all across the aisle. the finance minister, I chat with finance minister, the prime minister about how important this was. And the next thing you know, um, it got in the budget and they got $10 million over five years for research. And what's really ironic is that biodiva study is part of that money. So who knew? And uh, so, and it, it may or may not help me now, but the data they get is part of, you know, as they work towards, a test and you know, maybe ultimately a cure, but certainly better treatment. Um, so when all this was happening, I, um, I made the decision with my family that it, you know, I feel great. I'm working basically full time. We're in the process of packing up our house. We accidentally sold it to friends of our daughters and um, not accidentally, but it sort of wasn't anything we were really planning, but timing is everything and it's a good time so so could I have run again sure I could have um no different than people go through you know various cancers that they have to or or if you had um uh you know kidney uh dialysis that you have to be on it's similar to that but we made the decision it didn't make sense and um so I informed the party and um the Prime Minister uh, that I wasn't going to run so obviously they were disappointed which of course always makes you feel good but completely understand of course and um, so here we are and I'm well I'm not running I'm I'm helping with new candidates with new especially female candidates I'm working with Ali Lester Um, I'm helping Nicole Beattie on her nomination campaign so yeah it's it's not going away for me.
0: We'll talk about those things in a, in a little bit, but I'd like to look back just to, as well and ask you, how have family and friends reacted to you during this period of your diagnosis and, and your treatment?
1: Oh, well, um, you can't do it without rocks. And they have been my rock. And this is where I get a little emotional. Um, that's fine, it's good for people to know that there's a um, there's a human side to all of this technology and technical discussion about what this means, um, but you know it's um, COVID has made it different because you have no support when you go in the hospital, right? So I was in ICU for a couple of days because um, my I had a, a heart episode, my cart went into arrhythmia and um so i was in icu for a couple of days and and my daughter-in-law was there with me that night i think tom came the next day and stephanie came and she had to leave at noon because they were kicking everybody out of the house the hospital so she was able to bring a bag that was in the car into me and i never saw another soul for nine days that i knew and i'm okay i i you know, I'm reasonably competent to do these things. Not everyone is. Um, And then when you're going through, you get the news about what it's really like, and then you're in chemotherapy. Um, My daughter-in-law and my husband were on uh, FaceTime with me and the doctor, because as you're listening to it, you can't absorb it all. You think you're, you know, you get it until you get home and they say, okay, well, what about, I don't remember. So, so that was, key for me but as i'm saying getting my last chemotherapy in august um there's a young girl saying across me can't be 25 and in tears and this is her first and she has no idea what she's walking into and she sees us we're older um anyways i struck up a conversation with her and told her be fine the nurses take great care of you you know it's you know don't believe what you see on tv <laughs> uh, and so it turns out she was lived in my riding. She was from Roseneath and she was there all by herself. And uh, anyways, I walked past her a couple of times during the day I was there and uh, she was she was doing much better. So so I think my family and friends have been there to support me through. Some crazy times uh, <laughs> in all sorts of aspects of my life and I. Um, and this has been no different. And I guess that's part of why I've been so open about this is I think it's also my responsibility to be there for other people um, that are struggling. And um, when even my neighbors, they see me out walking, you know, after my surgery, I'm supposed to get out and walk. And you think, oh crap, but you do. And um, walking down and neighbors say, how did you know? Because as a woman, she has no idea. And so we go into the conversation. So it's been, um, one of the things I'm very lucky about is I have family who've been able to be here. My daughter, Alison's a teacher and her wife, Kathy's an accountant. They moved in from March to August and that just made it, you know, and Steph and Ziad live in town. And so they were sort of, you know, sort of part of that bubble, I guess you'd call it. And I have a dear friend, Penny, um, who's here too. She came in and stayed with us for part of the time after. So, and so it's not just about me, it's about Tom. I mean, you know, my husband of 40 some odd years, this is probably a bigger hit to him in some ways than it is to me because you're watching a loved one go through it. Like I have some control. Um, So, yeah, so I have just been sort of wrapped, and neighbors gave me a, last um chemo uh wine and cheese in august to say here we go we're done this so yeah it's it's i i just can't say how enough about how i don't want to say you know it certainly hasn't been fun but um it hasn't been it hasn't been bad it hasn't and it hasn't been all bad i can think more you know what they're saying on the front porch um, you know sort of watching the birds in the spring last year after surgery and just taking some time to sit there and have a conversation with someone who came by it's yeah i'm i'm very lucky
0: sounds more like a, a community than uh, than anything else
1: good point it is i think yeah that's a really good point and and you know the doctors and nurses and folks that come by I, you know, through this process um, have been outstanding. I have nothing but good things to say. So they're the technical folks, but the reality of sort of, you know, going to bed and then all of a sudden feel, oh, I didn't feel that yesterday. And what is that? That's the mental stuff that um, I did have, I did do a bit of counseling, very small amount because then COVID hit. And I just felt that I had enough outlets in my life that I was dealing with it. And, um, but there may come a time when I need to do that again, and I will, because sometimes you just need to talk to people that aren't family or aren't close to you to sort of lay it out there. But yeah, I'm, I'm. it has, community is probably a very good word, Rob. And there has been someone that we all know, um, with a fairly high profile who reached out to my daughter, uh, last weekend and said, I know your mom through, you know, politics and work kind of thing, but my mom's been diagnosed and she doesn't know anything. And she's struggling with having to go back into treatment and, and your mom seems to be doing so well, Would you mind do you think talking to her And so I said, of course, I I will. And I haven't, the connection hasn't been made yet, but I'm happy to do that. So yeah, the community gets bigger.
0: Let's talk about politics. Can you share the process of deciding uh, how you were going, sorry, can you share the process of deciding uh, how you were going to step away from politics? Was it a, a light bulb moment or was it a gradual decision over time? Was it a decision that you made alone or were there others involved? Tell us about that process.
1: So I don't think my family, to start with, um, even before I was diagnosed, um, I think there are certain members of my family that were thinking maybe I shouldn't, you know, it's I sort of i on going to high note. I, I was very successful at what I did and. It's pretty ugly in politics in a minority government. It just is, and it's um, it's not for the faint of heart. And the stress levels are high. And um, did I need that? And I said probably don't need it. But I really, you know, feel that that I can contribute, and that's just who I am and what I want to do. And so, so before I was diagnosed. Um, I was 85% sure I was going. There was still somebody who had 15% over there, but Tom was very supportive. And and I said, you know, I will, um, I want to do it. So that was fine, made the decision. I was going to do it. Then when I was diagnosed, it was, mm, I'm not taking it off the table, you know, but as you're sitting there, you're going through surgery, you're going through chemo and life is happening. you I think, oh, I don't to see how I come out on the other side of this. But part of the success of recovering from something like cancer um, is you have to, you can't, you can't focus on the now, you have to focus on the future. And um, I can't tell you how many trips we've booked over the past, you know, to go to BC, to our place in BC, or we were going up we thought we'd try a family vacation. We want to go to Vietnam. Anyways, you just book it and you cancel it. it. Seems to be the the thing these days. Cottages, whatever it might be. So, um, so yeah. So I, I said, let's look at it. And if my scans are good and things are good after, I want to put, I want to keep it on the table. So because everything was fine, I did. Then when this came back, it was it was not an aha moment. It was a very um I'd say there was a lot of thought put into it because I still want to do it I felt I could do it but then the question is should you do it and and part of the should was a couple of things one is um we have a a new grandchild who's five and a half months old and um we call her the miracle child because literally the day after my last treatment in August we were in a car on our way to Mount Sinai Hospital and um, so we were going every week there, and I was taking her. So um, so, and there was a lot of stress involved, and in I'm sure you can imagine. So you know, Amir was born, and we went through all that, and oh, you know, holding on to that. So that was one of the, the the factors. And then the other factor was really the fact that they told me I will be in and out of treatment for the rest of my life. What does that look like? We don't know. Everybody's different. And, and sure, I might. It might be a while. It might not. And am I operating at 100%? I'm not. But I'm probably operating at 90. And But if I'm operating at 60, how fair is that to, to my constituents, to the role I play, and the work I have to do? And not only is it not fair to them, but it would stress me out because I know I'm not operating at the level I should, which, you know, adds that extra layer again. So it was more that kind of process, thinking process that got me to the place. And, and part of my hesitancy was the fact it's minority government. The budget was expected in March. It could go at any time and then what? So, um, so yeah, So so it was a process to get there. I'm very... I'm very, um, I'm very happy with the decision I made. I wasn't sure you know if it was going to take me a while to to get there, but it didn't. It was like once I made the decision, it was the right decision. and I knew it was.
0: I don't think people often understand just what it takes to be a member of parliament and the amount of time and energy that goes into it. I know in past interviews, you and I have spoken about you know, a typical day for you. I mean, what, what, what was it like to, a, in Ottawa or, you know, getting back and forth in a week to to be in Ottawa, to come back and forth? Can you just, it really briefly just describe might be a typical day for you uh, when you were an MP?
1: Well, you know, typically I was um, on the train at uh, just before five o'clock um, when that, I don't know, the trains aren't running like they were um, on a Sunday night. And I was home on if, all went well, I was home on the Friday night train at seven. Um, If things didn't go well, I was home on the Friday night train at 10. And um, there was, I mean, yeah. I mean, I got to take the train, which was great because it's complimentary, it's free. You know, if you drive, you get to charge mileage and you know, some people like to do that. I just found it as three hours of my life where I could work on the way up and try not to think on the way back. Um, to get your head back into the space of coming back home to the riding and sort of decompressing I guess is what they call it so I found it very efficient and I found it um, good for me and um, and the times worked out fine the you know when you're in Ottawa you you don't have a life um, you know the the egg farmers want to meet at 7 a.m and the the um, you know the the Because I was parliamentary secretary, I had um, what they we used to call their questions at the end of the day. So never would you get out before seven Um, and generally committees sometimes are meeting till 830. And so so your day is um, your day is full. There's a reason you have someone that runs your life because you couldn't do it and do everything that you needed to do and why you have assistance. You know, committee work, you might only be in committee for two or three hours, but there's probably six hours of prep or more that go into each one of those committee meetings that you have to read and do. And when I was a parliamentary secretary, I mean, I would easily have four to five hours of reading um, easily on my schedule a day. That's where the train came in handy. I could sort of take Thursdays and Fridays and do it, do it on the way back the other thing I guess I would say is when you land you know most MPs fly I took the train but when you land back in your riding there was inevitably something on Friday night and then Saturday whether it was a you know festival in um in Campbellford or whether you know um, it was a um Um, meeting with folks in your in the writing office because you weren't here during the week it it was pretty well booked I always we worked really hard at trying to give me um Sunday at least Sunday a bit of Sunday afternoon late morning Sunday afternoon off so I could sort of just be home and you know catch up with Tom and say hello although I must say that it mostly never worked out we tried Uh, and I have a retired husband, he's, doing it, he's consulting, but it's his own schedule. So he would, most often if people saw me in an event, they saw Tom in an event. And so it really was a partnership and that made it certainly easy, easier for me.
0: You are a very well-known public figure and you have been for decades. Uh, you were a leader in advocacy movement for daycare through to being a respected businesswoman. Uh, Your activism and activities in the community are well known. In respect to this aspect of your life, could you describe how it is different now that you are moving out of the spotlight?
1: Well, that's a really interesting question, because while I may not be in the spotlight, I still seem to be in the thick of things. And uh, over the past year and a half, you know, COVID, we're not seeing people, et cetera, et cetera. I have been helping. Um, There have been organizations in this riding that have come to me and said, I need some help. I don't understand this. It doesn't seem to be, you know, I'm not getting any response. What can I do? And and so I'm helping them. I've had municipalities. um, You want to know things about sort of what the process looks like and who they might get in touch with etc cetera, et cetera. and so I'm still doing a lot of that um, and I'm working with um, and because I'm doing consulting for the nuclear sector I'm still really involved in the community you know, whether it's with Cameco or the municipality of Clarington, OPG what have you so there's um there doesn't seem to have been much of a lag. While I don't have the office support and the team, which I valued a ton, and obviously I'm not doing it to the same level I was, I'm still doing it. So, um, and I'm, I'm, you know, as I said, I'm, I'm still involved in, um, you know, my daughter Stephanie is chair of um, a couple of fairly high profile boards in the, the community. And so when I can, I support her by, you know, taking care of Amira in the evening while she does her board meetings. And I, it may seem, you know, well, that's just looking after your granddaughter, but tonight it's four to seven because she has a committee meeting and a board meeting and her husband's in meetings. And, and so I think I'm just kind of engaged in those organizations in a bit of a different way than I was before. And I, I don't anticipate, um, I've been asked to sit on boards, I've been asked to do a number of things I am um, on the advisory board of onprior prior aerospace, uh, which is Boeing, which I'm enjoying immensely. Um, I will start to get involved more in local organizations once COVID has sort of moved, uh, you know, hopefully to the back burner and um, see where I can put my skill set to use that makes the most sense. Um, in the community. So I don't intend to, I don't intend to sort of, there will be a lower profile because I'm not the member of parliament, but I expect my profile on the community in terms of volunteerism and engagement will continue to be high. That's my hope.
0: I I never doubted for a moment that you'd be super busy. I guess what I'm more interested in, or maybe the audience might be interested in is, you know, Uh, when you're a politician, you're in the spotlight. You know, you're in the Canada Day Parade, you're, uh, oh, you're right. speaking at events, you are out and you have a very public profile. Whereas a lot of, you know, in the past, as, as well as I'm sure going forward, you know, your activism in the community, uh, no doubt it will remain high. I guess what I'm asking you though, is that difference from being a political figure and, and being out in front of people and speaking and engage with people uh, at, on a very different level than what we're talking about now. How's that different?
1: Well, it's, it's interesting because I mentioned we we're moving and unpacking, And when you pack, you purge. And so I maintained two households, uh, basically, when I was um, in Ottawa. And as you know, I would have to be on a plane to China with 24 hours notice. So I was always at the ready to be able to do those kinds of things. And so when all of that sort of got pulled into one, I... I did some purging and some, you know, reevaluating. But as I'm moving, I'm going and I'm thinking, okay, I don't need these fleece-lined uh long johns anymore cuz I won't be in four parades a night or a day for Santa Claus. Um so, you know, I, I do I need all of the accoutrements that came with um, you know, I always keep my hats cuz I'm a hat person. But um uh, just even just the wardrobe that you uh would have and as a woman you know guys you guys have it easy you can have a blue suit and a gray suit and maybe you might have a pinstripe suit a few shirts and you're good to go um women are sadly um uh, sort of if you're if you're not up to uh i remember this in the house of commons that we had some vote or something was happening and men have to wear ties. If you're going to speak, if you want to be recognized by the speaker to vote, to speak, you have to wear a tie. And women don't have that. And it's kind of interesting. But of course, when all these rules were put together, women really weren't in parliament. So there's that. But I remember Lisa Rake coming in in a track suit and, you know, I had to think that's not how she would normally come in the house for sure and it was a late vote etc etc and I had to think one of two things she's not feeling well and they she they crawled you know pulled her out of bed to come vote because she's got the flu or she was in the middle of a workout or something and they said we don't have the numbers and you have to get here um, but the comments that came from that You know, if a guy didn't show up with a tie, they say, oh, well, he, you know, he can't vote or he can't speak. It's just more judgmental, I guess. So, so because I won't be in the spotlight as much, um, you know, that's something I, I looked and how many gowns have I had for galas and things and okay, we have to get rid of some of these folks. So I enjoyed being in that milieu where I, Tom and I have always been very social you know, we we've been going to the hospital gala since it's been formed or sportsman's night. I still want to do all those things and I, I hope I can do all those things and we'll see what it all looks like after COVID. But um, so I I don't know if I'll lose the social spotlight, but I'll certainly lose the political spotlight. And that's good because there's people coming after me that need to have that spotlight. and. I intend to be a a strong mentor for them doing that.
0: I I want you to think back to when you first decided to run. Now, from a perspective that you have now, do you recall the moment you took those first steps to running and and what are your thoughts on it today?
1: Never forget them ever. Never forget them. Um, I got a phone call from Martin Partridge. Some might remember Martin back in the day. And Paul Macklin had um, been our member of parliament. Um, He was, I think he'd run twice. There was a minority parliament and and he wasn't successful. And so he was deciding whether he was going to do it again. And um, I kind of knew it, but never really thought anything of it. And to your point earlier, I've always been sort of an advocate, engaged in, you know, provincial and federal on a number of issues, but never really considered sort of getting into that political sphere as a candidate. I just, it hadn't. And um, so Martin called me and he said, it sounds like Paul's really thinking about not running again. We think we being whoever he was talking to as a group, um, we'd really like you to run. And I said, "Oh, well, that's interesting. Um, I never really thought about it. Um, can you give me a minute?" And he says, "Well, we don't have many minutes because we sort of want to, you know, we we want to get this locked in or firmed up." And so I hung up the phone. I went and talked to Tom, and I said, "What do you think about this?" And my mother ran uh, for provincially and federally for the NDP back in the back in the sort of way days and um, so I said what do you think and he said well I think you'd be great and I said okay but you know this is not going to be an easy run this is this is going to take a lot of work and and I may or may not make it and he said no if you want to do it he said absolutely 100 percent so 10 minutes later I called Martin back and I said I'm in And that was, um, I mean, I'd always been engaged with the Liberal Party anyways. And so it wasn't something that was brand new to me. It was just my position being brand new.
0: Do you remember the campaign against Rick Norlock? And what was the biggest lessons coming out of that campaign for you?
1: Mm -hmm. I learned a lot. I mean, 2011 was a tough election, uh, just physically, emotionally. We knocked on 20,000 doors. Um, during that and we did in 2015 as well but 2011 was different and it was a different riding it was north among Quinty west and we had trenton we had um we had some some sort of geographic challenges that um because everybody thinks well trenton it's a very conservative area yes but the folks on the base can vote where they are or from home. And and so it just makes sort of campaigning uh, to me anyways, a bit different. And so, so 2011, Rick and I, I mean, I always, I always liked Rick. Rick uh, was, um, we were on political, opposite political sides and on a lot of issues, but he was a gentleman and he was respectful and um, there were a couple around him that weren't so, so much. And um, I think you may know the story of me being cornered at the Trenton High School and spit on by two of his, we call them the sign guys. And, um, and Rick, I decided to go to Rick privately. And I said, I don't know, I'm just telling you, I was uncomfortable. It was, you know, and Rick was visibly upset. And he had a chat with his two sign guys. And um, in the 2015 election, I met one of them, an event at the Legion in Warkworth. And he came up to me, he says, you know, and by this point, he's gotta be 70 something. And he comes like, these were not young guys. These were retired guys. And he came up and he said, I can't believe I did that. He said, I just can't apologize enough to you for what I did. And I said, you know, I appreciated that. And obviously he had been thinking about it. It 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 he was caught up in whatever moment. And um he just went over the edge. So so Rick and I, we were on opposite ends of the, you know, cannabis legislation for sure. Um, childcare. He was one of the ones, you know, well, kind of, he didn't say if women stayed home, we wouldn't need it, but He was of the Doug Galt thinking, because I remember Doug Galt saying that in an interview with me years ago. Well, you know, don't Kim, don't you think of women just stay home and look after the kids that that we wouldn't have all these mental health issues. And so, yeah, so Rick wasn't quite that far, but we were very different in our thinking. But I will never forget a conversation I had with Rick and his wife. And um, she was quite the... She, you know rick was a bit subdued but but she, i'm trying to think of her name i can see her red hair anyways um she was out there she took lessons to be an auctioneer and i remember at workworth one time she was auctioneering pies we were at a victorian tea in um might have been hmm. It was, it was the west part of the riding, uh, not Brighton, but one of the smaller communities and or east part rather. And um, we were sitting there and it's the three of us are sitting there and Judy, that was her name. And we were talking about our kids, you know, he has one that's a police officer, OPP officer and our youngest grandson is now an OPP officer up north, I should send brick and note actually. And um, his other one is out in the west coast and he works for the Forest Service, room, I think and grandkids and what have you and and so i was telling him that um you know our oldest daughter was moving back to canada she and her wife um and the two children and you could just see him not know what to do and rick says well that's okay and i said yes and and because my daughter is gay he was sort of caught off guard and that was not comfort zone for rick and so i said you know and so we had a conversation about it and sort of i just carried on and talked about grandchildren etc etc and took him out of back in his comfort zone but you could see for him it wasn't it wasn't um it was just he didn't know how to, I don't think he'd been presented with that before, I guess is the way I'd say it. So, um, so yeah, so I remember, Rick, it wasn't easy. We had some heated exchanges for sure and debate, but that's in the days we had debates when there was press, when there was coverage, and when there was questions from the floor that weren't that, and, you know, it was, it was good. Um, but the 2011 election was not mine to win. And we all know that.
0: What changed for you going into the next election against Adam Moulton, where you won? What what contributed to that?
1: Well, yeah, that was an that was interesting. I, we were, you know, I was surprised Adam won. I think most people were, given who he Paul, who he was up against um, in nomination. But um, Adam Adam was. Um, he was an interesting opponent in that he really had no life experience uh you know he's fresh our university um he his family had history here you know his dad owned the canadian tire etc cetera, etc cetera. but but it's so it became a campaign of my um experience against his talking point if you know what i mean and so it was it was just it was a very different very different campaign for that reason. But there's no question that that um, at the time you you probably know I was Justin Trudeau's Eastern Ontario chair for his campaign uh, to become leader, and there is no question that his numbers and Canada's need for change was a huge part of that. Huge part of that. Um, Sea change that came. You'll remember Port Hope Thanksgiving weekend on the Monday when we closed the streets with 1,100 people, and because Justin Trudeau came to talk to them. So I certainly got that, um, and and so that's you know I only won by about the same thing I lost by this time in 2019. I think the other the thing that changed again between 2015 and 2019 um, certainly, you know, things weren't from a from a Ottawa leader perspective. In a swing riding, you need the leaders numbers to be at a certain number and they weren't for 2019, no question. And so that had a huge impact and was was, you know, to to for sure, the majority of the impact. But there also was an impact on the social right conservative movement in this riding Uh, of that. There is no doubt. I mean, campaign Life coalition came and was giving out literature um, and they sure weren't supporting me. (laughs) So uh, so we know that um, and and it's unfortunate because I think it's not a healthy um, I think it's not a healthy sort of process. I remember being down in front of Victoria Hall and they were protesting there on, or not protesting, information session on the main street of Coburg and just down from Phillip's campaign office on King Street. And there was a woman that came by and she was furious. She had in her hand a postcard that had been left in her mailbox of an aborted fetus. And her daughter got the mail. And I remember that. And I remember this is not right. This is not how it should be. But they had targeted certain numbers of, of um M, you know candidates that they were going to take over the top. And um, you know, Philip and our writing happened to be one of them, and, and we just had to deal with it.
0: Do you remember your first day on Parliament Hill?
1: Oh gosh. Hmm. I do, and it was before the house sat, sat, it was the day I went up and was um, sworn in, and uh, we rented a bus, like a coach bus from Lakeshore Tours, a local um, company, and a bunch of folks came with us, um, people who had volunteered, who, people who had... Um, people I remember a young girl that was just a silver picture of her and I when I was signing the book from Coburg that was just so wanted to be a politician when she grew up and her parents had contacted us and so she came she and her pa- parents came and my family of course came um one didn't come my daughter-in-law didn't come she was working and she couldn't get off and she now regrets just not quitting to come but anyways um it was. I remember the swearing-in and the pomp and circumstance that goes with it. And I, and as Tom was cleaning out his office, we both have offices in the house. He found the CD DVD I'd forgotten about it that was taken of. Um, so I'm, I've tucked it away and I have packed it because when we get to our new place, will that'll be a you know moment to reflect. So um, yeah, it was uh, it was pretty special for sure.
0: Now you had a a very, um, I'm, I'm not sure the best word to use, but your political career took off very quickly and you were named parliamentary secretary for the Minister of Natural Resources. Now that's a big step up in a political career. How did that change things for you in Ottawa?
1: Well, uh, as I said earlier, it had to make me more nimble. I'd always been someone who could multitask and you know, sort of pivot when I needed to. And um, so that was a very handy skill, I would say. But if you come into briefings, so as a new parliamentary secretary to the minister, I mean, I'd met the minister before, before he was elected, but it's a different dynamic now. And you have the deputy minister and all the assistant deputy ministers sitting in a room with this binder that's probably three of them. They're probably about eight inches thick and saying, by the way, (laughs) here's what you need to know and so they give you the salient points but the reading had to be done and it was part of my role was to be the minister when he wasn't available and so when he was unable to be in the house for whatever reason whether he was at meetings you know traveling or whether he was in some other uh, situation my responsibility was to stand up at the house and answer questions for him and so I had briefing of course, you know, what do we think is going to come up? What's, you know, sort of what's, um, sort of what are the hot topics, if you will, of the day? And because depending on what happens when you open the newspaper, could be something you never thought was going to sort of cross your realm. And, and it was also, um, I did a lot of international work, as you know, uh, mostly on the nuclear file, but I did it on mining, I did on forestry, I did on oil and gas, um, so I really did cover the gambit, but it was um one of the things I always felt good about was having a broad scope of knowledge because natural resources touches on trade, international development, like it it, it has a lot of um sort of um threads into different places. And I I had a very strong team in my riding which made it it's it it wouldn't I wouldn't have been able to do it without it and Penny Crawford um, she was my executive assistant in Ottawa she'd come up every week with me she was that sort of connection between the two and um, sort of kept my life um, on track while I was um, was was there and interesting she'd stay with me and during the week And when I got back to the place about, you know, to our apartment about 830 at night, dinner would be ready. And I could just sit down and eat um, and, you know, decompress for half an hour. And I learned early. One of the things I learned, I used to come home and do my reading, you know, usually about an hour and a half a night. And then my brain would start to go and I couldn't get to sleep. So I learned to get up much earlier in the morning and do it in the morning, and you know, it, it worked in in my cycle. But there's a um, there's a a sort of a rhythm, I guess you you get into to some degree. You know, question period is at this time, house opens at this time, to some degree. But I was also doing. Um, doing work with other departments, other ministries around environment. I was very engaged in environment. The current Minister of Environment, Jonathan Wilkinson and I, when he was the parliamentary secretary, we were co-chairs of the Energy and Environment Caucus, things like that, that 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 sort of broadened your horizon. I worked very closely with global affairs, so I would do a number of embassy uh, meetings that that um, sort of touched on those things. So It was, it was crazy, but it seems to have gone by in a flash. It really does.
0: You did step down as parliamentary secretary, uh, uh, and you said at the time, you said you said you wanted to do it because you wanted to better serve your writing. How did you come to that decision and what are your thoughts now reflecting on that decision?
1: It was absolutely the right decision. Another one of those that um, sort of presents itself. And, and there were a couple of things happening at the same time that kind of made it make sense. So one was Jim Carr and I had worked together for three years as he was minister as PS. And we always joked that we had the mess marriage in parliament in that um, we could he knew I would always be able to sort of pinch hit for him, I, I was always up on my files, I was flexible, he could always count on me. And, and so it made our ability to sort of the scope of our work be bigger than it might have been, um, and also smoother, which is always, you know, which is always a goal. Um, so But there was a new minister coming in, and I love Emergy Sohi, and he is now not running. Um, This time, he is going to run for mayor of Edmonton, which I think is brilliant. And Emergy was coming in. And one of the things that I was unable to do, to the degree that I felt I should, was speak French. My comprehension wasn't bad, but I couldn't speak French. And there are lots of sectors where French is important and um, and Jim Carr didn't speak French either. And energy was coming in and you know I thought yes I can help it was right around TMX and heaven knows I knew that file. So it was so there were two things one is there was a change and sometimes when a change happens that's the right time for to make the full change And in the writing, we knew that, I knew that the prime minister's numbers were not going to be as high as I probably needed them to be. And I needed to do some extra work. That was one thing. The other thing is I was working on a few really big files in the constituency, one being the rural broadband and the other being infrastructure. And um, it was, and I I was having meetings in the constituency, with um, ISP providers, with folks. Some actually came to Ottawa because I we just couldn't make it happen. And I said, you know what, maybe this is this is a message. This is the time. And Paul Lefebvre took over for me as parliamentary secretary, fully bilingual. He's from Sudbury. It really clicked with the mining and the forestry. And so the decision was made that I was stepping back the prime minister and the finance minister asked me to go on the finance committee standing committee which I was thrilled about especially as a small business owner I thought that was a good place for me to be and I felt I could contribute but the nuclear file was still there and um, so I as an example I went to the clean energy ministerial in Vancouver that year with Amarjeet. Um, and I had been to that the um, Clean Energy Ministerial in Stockholm the year before and I can't remember where it was the year before so I was still fulfilling a role that needed to be um, held but not with an official title and, and that was fine with all of us
0: I, I know mentoring is a big part of what you do especially women who are activists or are active in the community along with women who are in politics why is this so important to you? Oh
1: That's a really good question because I think it's a responsibility. I said at the outset here, I think when we were talking that, you know, great along with great opportunities comes great responsibility. And um, maybe it's because I come from a long line of advocates, my mother and my grandmother. Um, Maybe it's because I had people mentor me. Um, They weren't women, but they were mentors. And, um, and I benefited greatly from, from that. And as I came up through, you know, I was talking to, um, I just did a, a panel with, I think it was Mary Monsef, uh, a couple of months ago, International Women's Day, and a number of leaders from the community. And we were talking and I said, you know, back in the early days of starting a business, you need your husband's signature for a bank account or to get a loan. Yes, things have changed, but there's still work to be done in terms of women and business and opportunities and and sort of some parity. So so I saw that happening as I was going through the process. You know, I would be sitting around a table and I was the only woman. Um, Certainly still happens in the energy sector, I'll say, but that's changing. It's changing significantly. Um, And... So in order to get more women to a place where, um, in order to get women to a place where um, there's more of us with more, um, with more opportunity and more support, then I feel it's a responsibility I have. And I do enjoy doing it. And, and it's, it's been successful. There are some businesswomen that you would know that I have maybe had a little, um, a little you know been able to offer a little bit of support to them and um and it's just it just makes you feel good to see that you're you're it's not just about them being successful it's about the fact that you know we have 50 percent of the world is women and we have a lot to offer and the more we can do to sort of unlock that potential is something that that um we absolutely have to do it if we're going to be successful as an economy.
0: Alison Lester, the newly elected or selected uh, Liberal candidate for Northumberland Peterborough South. Can you tell us about your relationship with her and the mentorship that's going on there?
1: Sure. Well, it's funny. Turns out, um, Alison and I had a connection over three decades ago, uh, but she forgot about it. She was pretty young she and her brother actually came to Cook's daycare. How funny is that? This happens to me all the time, and that's why I'm saying I don't think my profile will ever come down. It's like generational now. And um, so so Allison, um, about two and a half years ago, before the 2019 election, we were talking. um, And uh, because, you know, Allison's a a businesswoman in town. She's a lawyer. She's a mom. She's involved in you know, boards of directors, and and uh, I remember her inviting me a few years ago. This is going back about five, four years ago, maybe. She was chair of the West Bend board, you know, in in Trent Hills, inviting me to a fundraising lunch, and they were having up in Workworth, and and so so we had a connection for sure. And and she's my daughter's age, and they had a connection through lawyer you know to lawyer uh, um i guess same profession so she's we were somewhere socially and um I've even been the hospital gown and she said to me you know kim if you ever decide not to run it's something i kind of thought about and i'd like to know your thoughts and you know, sort of what it's like and what you think. And, but, but like, I'm no, no intention against you. She says, I just want to know, you know, what you think. And, um, so we had a conversation, uh, you know, a couple of weeks later or so. And so she, her husband, Todd, she talked to Todd and what have you. And, and, um, she said, you know, I think maybe when the time comes, it's something I'm going to consider. I said great and so tell me what you need and so we talked and we would have conversations from time to time and she would ask questions and she got involved and and um, it you know one of the things I said to her your family will be so important um, because this is an all in job if you do it right let me be clear if you do it right and so so um that was the conversation. So after the 2019 election, I told her I was considering it. I thought I was probably running to hold that thought kind of thing. And then she knew about my health issue and we talked and I told her, you know, all my scans everything was good. So in January I said I'm I'm going to run. That's my plan. Well, then 6 weeks later or less, I wasn't. And so I reached out to Allison and I said, it's open because I'm submitting my nomination papers. You know, I'm just doing the last sort of dotting of I and crossing of T. And um, so if something you're serious about, you should get them in. And um, she did like 24 hour turnaround, something like that, it was short and um, that she put them in, like got them and did them. And and, and it's not easy. I was much easier as a former camp, former MP, but as a newbie, it's a lot of work uh, to get done, but somehow she turned it around and it might've been 48 hours, very short time. And so it kind of gave me a bit of a relief. I didn't know what else was going to happen, you know, if other people would do it or serve, sort of, but that was the party's decision, not mine. I sort of, you know, I, and because of the threat of a, a constant threat of, a, um, of an election going on the budget, um, the party closed the nominations and um, Allison went through the vetting process, very similar to what I did back in originally. And um, here we are. She's now the candidate for North Olympia, Barossa. And I couldn't be more thrilled.
0: What's the best advice you'd give her?
1: Well, I've already given her some pretty good advice, um, and others have as well. I think the best advice, and and I say this, and it's kind of hard to explain. I don't. This sounds terrible, and I don't mean. I guess until you've lived it, it's hard to explain. But I think you may know this, Rob. Like I had. My staff were abused in their office. I mean, they had called the police. I had to get. They recommended. No, I had to get the RCMP and local police recommended. I get we get an alarm system in our house for the. We lived here for forty four years. Never would I have thought I'd met that. I had threats. Police came and scoped out our house to look at egress. Um, I couldn't go to some events because the threat was there. And these are local folks. Like <laughs> these are local folks. These are. This is not some. You know, I could, I can name them. And so, so what I think, and it's as a woman, I don't know if you ever heard this happening to a man, but it's happened to Catherine McKenna. It's happened to, um, oh, she's in London. She's a conservative member. Um, Gosh, really nice person. Anyways, it's happened to a number of women. And I think part of what fuels that is the, the, the acceptance of um, a vitriol, the acceptance of, um, I'm just gonna give you a quick example. There was a post that was put out and I think it was um, today's Northumberland. I think there were a few after I made my announcement, I wasn't running. And this person who I know who he is and, and you may very well, it's not like he's trying to hide his name, it was on Facebook. And the, Cecilia wrote the article, Cecilia Naismith, and it was really about, you know, sort of, I'm not running a why and that I had cancer. And so there were lots of lovely comments, you know, I, I want to say that to all your listeners, the comments are were just, you know, they were just so heartwarming, and I can't thank people enough. And then there are those that You know said some pretty awful things and um this one person said something about um you know not good for anything never did anything never showed up just you know whatever collected a paycheck terrible just you know things that are meant to be mean and and then somebody responded and there was another response and he said well, that's not true. She has done things. I've seen her cleaning tables at Ribfest. And the next person said, Oh, well, at least she's good for something. So someone went on and said, like, have a heart. The reason the woman isn't running is because she has cancer. Like, give it a give it a rest. And the, the person who started this came and said, Well, if I if I knew she, I didn't read the article. If I knew she had cancer, I wouldn't have said it. And then the other person comes on and says, I don't care. Cancer has nothing to do with being, I won't repeat what they said. So that's the conversation that happens in social media. And that's a mild one compared to some of the stuff we've had to. If you ever see it, and I know you know this, Rob, where it says there's 10 comments, but when you open it up, you only see two. There's a reason for that. The rest have to be taken off. And it's not, people can say negative things, but you have to say insulting things and, and name-calling, and I have no patience. So my best advice to Allison and her family, because it's family, it's not me. It's my husband, it's my kids, it's my son-in-law that see these comments and they just want to answer back. And I said, nope, and let it go. Understand where it came from and let it go. And so that's my best advice to Allison. It is going to be out there, it's ugly. It's it's depressing because that's a side of our humanity that, in my opinion, um, is not our best. And um, but you have to let it go. You have to understand who that where it, the place from where it's coming from from people who are not interested in running themselves or or any kind of research. Um, just just trial and and nastiness. So. That's probably the best piece of advice I can give her. The rest will just come as it does.
0: Kimrat, I want to thank you so much for talking to me today.
1: Thank you, Rob. It, it was fun. It was very enjoyable, and I hope you. Uh, I hope as COVID moves on, we can do this in person in the future, and uh, look forward to to uh, hearing comments and questions from your from your listeners.
0: That was my interview with Kim Rudd, former MP for Northumberland-Peterborough South. I want to thank my guests this week for talking to me, and I want to thank all the listeners for tuning in today. Please join me again next week when we will talk to the people on the front lines and those behind the scenes who make a difference in your life and Northumberland County. So please tune in. If you would like to listen or share this or any podcast, please check out my website at consider There you will find past podcasts, news, and other information about life and politics in Northumberland County. Or you can go to the radio station's website at northumberland897.ca. I'm Robert Washburn. Thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in, and I hope over the week you will continue to consider this. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Consider This. If you have any comments or would like to suggest a story, please contact me at considerthisnorthumberland at gmail.com, or you can message me on Facebook at Consider This. If you enjoyed this podcast or are looking for more news and information about Northumberland County, please check out my website at consider-this.ca. That's consider-this.ca. And don't forget to share. And again, thank you for listening, and stay tuned for more from Consider This.